Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earth Rights, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Welcome back to the Earth Rights Podcast. Today we are here with two friends of ours from Russia who have asked to remain anonymous given the unstable political situation in Russia at the moment. Um, so for this reason, we won't be sharing any personal or professional details and our questions will remain broad. Neither Mel or I have ever visited Russia and with the international media very critical of the situation with Putin and historically everything that's happened over the past couple of decades, we, I guess, just wanted to ask some more broad questions about what it's like living in Russia and what, what their personal experiences are as um, a Russian citizen and compare what this is like for us living in the UK. Also, just a quick message before we get into the episode. Um, our two interviewees are parents of a newborn and when they generously gave up their time to speak with us at Earthrights they obviously had to look after their newborn so you might hear a few very sweet baby sounds um, throughout this episode. So first of all we wanted to look a little bit about the ideological struggles of Russia and the, the politics surrounding Russia and I think this is quite a stark point because in the UK and in Europe, we've largely been, um, run in a, in dem- in a democratic way. And Russia is in contrast a socialist nation. And in the 20th century in Russia, people have suffered a lot of hardship and oppression because of the, um, political situation and because of the communist ideology. But to start where sort of mo- modern Russian history begins is at the October Revolution, which was happened in 1917 to 1923. And it marked the end of the Romanov dynasty, which was the royal family. And they were killed in a very cruel and way. And so that's basically when the Soviet Union was established. Um, and that was led by Lenin, who also established the Communist Party. So the ideological makeup of communism and socialism was founded by Lenin, Engels and Marx, who did away with the church and started this new state. And that sort of set, set the precedent for the rest of the century and for now. It would be worth asking at this point whether the ideology of communism and where that started, whether that still exists today in Russia and whether there is still um, what communism is like in present day Russia. Uh, first of all, I would say about uh, Lenin. I think Lenin just used some part of Marxist ideas. Uh, but his uh, communism isn't Marxist uh, ideology because uh, he just used some part to make some instrument for his uh, terror because he made a big red terror because uh, when he was a teenager, he very good in uh, conspiration. He was a master of uh, conspiration. So he had bad goals from uh, that time, but nobody uh, knew about it. 
And then when he started his uh, politic, uh, political uh, career, he thought that he wants to make uh, terror. Uh, it was his goal. Long before revolution formulated this goal, and he made terror before revolution too. He organized bands which uh, killed people and so on. Uh, so he was just very clever terrorist. Yes, and uh, uh, his ideas, influential, made uh, a big impact in our uh, culture and life. But uh, let's say it is uh, Lenin's uh, communism. It's not Marxism. And as I said, he was a, a clever man, and I think he wanted to be uh, uh, an owner of the world or something like this. So he made some clever things. We have medicine system, uh, educational system, uh, and so on. The, the same organization as he created uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. And the name in Russia, we call it like Leninism. So, I mean, it has its own word. Yes, this idea, this uh, his ideas uh, mixed with ideas of Karl Marx. Okay, so the education system and the medical system have prevailed, but then obviously later Stalin had his dictatorship, so that was from 1927 till the 1940s. And he was also a very awful man because he constantly silenced criticism. The, he's known for the Great Purge and the show trials um, where millions of dissidents were killed. Just uh, simple people also, millions of... Uh, oh, really? uh, not only dissidents. So is Stalin's form of communism called Stalinism then? Or is it, what did he set up that still exists today? Yes, uh, there uh, is a point of view that uh, Putin uh, now uses some ideas of Stalin, some ideas about Russian nation, great uh, Russian language. So Stalin just looked what Hitler did, and uh, he decided to rethink communism a little bit, to change uh, emphasis. Yes, and he uh, created this paradigm of a great uh, language uh, which uh, unites uh, all Soviet Union. And uh, Putin now tries to use these kind of ideas. So nowadays, what does life look like in Russia under Putin, whether it's communist or socialist? How is it different from Europe? Maybe I can try to talk a little bit to think about this. But um, first... It's very important to understand that there is a huge contrast between Moscow and regions. And we even say in Russian that uh, Moscow is not a Russia, is not Russia. And uh, uh, we, we have this already for many, many years. And this contrast, it's only increase. So for understanding, for the moment, Moscow is a city, agglomeration, nearly of 18 million people. So it's close to Sao Paulo in Brazil or to, to Shanghai. It's difficult to imagine, but it's really huge, huge city uh, with very, very modern technologies because the mayor of the city is a big fan of China and Singapore. So we have uh, a lot of uh, technologies which we never have seen in Europe. It's more similar to Asia. Uh, starting from a very modern um, transportation system, which they have renovated in Moscow, like uh, electro buses um, or uh, high-speed trains, 
and they are building a lot of new roads for the moment, but only in Moscow. And in region, we have very poor roads, and the gap between uh, salaries in Moscow and in regions, it's incredible. So this is the first thing. And uh, life in Russia, we can judge uh, um, about Moscow, first of all, because we are from Moscow and we live in Moscow. We can talk, we can, we can imagine and we can talk about regions a little bit because we visit uh, these regions and uh, some of our uh, relatives are living there. Uh, but uh, um, Moscow is a very, a very quick city. Everything is very, fa very fast and uh, we say that Moscow never sleeps because when you're in the center, you have uh, people in restaurants, bar, discos, clubs and whatever. And uh, we have a city district, uh, which is um, like similar, like, like city in London, which is also called city with uh, skyscrapers. And um, we have uh, a lot of uh, new building construction in process because the rent in Moscow is very, very expensive and the land is very expensive. So it's a good business, which is... Uh, developing and uh, for the last three years which we haven't been here uh i have and now we return and i have no noticed uh several um, like several quarters which were built uh in different uh, different parts of moscow but uh strange way uh, to lead business i think for european people maybe because often it is about that when they build these buildings they take a lot of money for it and uh, then doesn't matter for them if uh, these flats will be sold so it is also very often uh, about corruption but another problem is that often these buildings are uh, not in correspondence with the buildings around them. It means that in Europe, as far as we know, exists strict regulation that you cannot build anything new in the historical center, for example. You cannot build the building higher than and some, um, some dedicated height. You cannot build like a building of 30 floors in this, among the buildings of 15th century. And here we have a mess with this, and this is a big problem, that this historical inheritance, it is destroyed or, or often just not renovated, and they wait until it falls down by itself, and then just take away this garbage and build new buildings, which will be ugly. Yeah. Uh, among these old buildings. And about political situation nowadays, I think it uh, can be described like this, that uh, we have uh, mafia. So the people leading Russia are mafia. Wow. It is a common picture of Russian government, but I agree with this picture. So, so uh, and they do not have such a strong ideology. Uh, it was uh, when uh, Stalin lived the country. So it's more about them having power and making lots of money. But we need to say that a lot of people will not agree with us. Okay. We are in we are in minority. Mm -hmm.
as I understand it, the Russian state has a reputation for silencing opposition, as we've seen with Alexei Navalny and even the poisoning of the spies in Salisbury a few years ago. But in Russia, is propaganda really obvious and really present? How is it manifested and formed? Yes, propaganda exists and exists uh, all this uh, time of Putin. I think propaganda has a big influence on uh, old people, but uh, younger generations more and more looks for information in the uh, internet. So for these uh, young people, propaganda works less and less effective. We need to understand uh, that even people who are working for this propaganda do not believe in it. Because sometimes it's just, again, the question of money. They have uh, a huge salaries. Mm. So um, when we listen to some interviews with them, which we like uh, not formal, which we can easily find on the Internet, and uh, journalists ask them something like, uh, do you believe in, um, in what you are doing? They will say that, uh, you know, this is my work, I'm paid for it, and they cannot discuss it. But it's obvious from, from their conversation with these journalists that they are uh, on the other part. But they keep silence because uh, they are working on the TV, for example. And obviously, like we saw um, in like the media in England about protests in Russia against the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny. So there is like a growing group of people that I guess are speaking out against what's going on. And like, what's your experience of this? Like, have you seen protests? And do you think that this growing body of people, are they you know, influencing the greater political political system? I think uh, it will be a very long story. So, as I said, now a lot of people from young generations are in opposition, but they are on the first steps uh, in this way. So, just now uh, we have a very little chance to change something in our country. Uh, but I hope maybe in five years can be changed because uh, you know, uh, if uh, in uh, Chinese leaders, they are also... Mafia. Yes, and they are also bad people, but they are clever people. They have a vision of the future of the country. They make some reforms, and our government do nothing. They just try to control the silent opposition, and that's all. But we also need to mention that the, the, the protests which have taken place two days ago, they were uh, because of uh, Alexei Navalny, who asked for doctors, because he was uh, uh, he was struggling under strike, because he wanted doctors to come to the prison and to check the conditions of his health, uh, because he had, uh, he had started having problems uh, with uh, all his body. And uh, now we have we had a not very in fact clear situation uh, that it is said that the doctors came to him just before the protests when the protests were just announced uh, and nobody told this to the people who were going to the streets so now there is a kind of uh, disinformation and uh, uh, the result. The short-term result of yesterday, not yesterday, but the day before protest, 
was that uh, Alexei Navalny has stopped his hunger strike. Uh, but it, uh, I don't think that it uh, really changed something in even middle term perspective, because the idea is that he will stay in the prison as long as possible. And so now he is in the prison. He is still alive, which is good for sure. Uh, but we need to understand. And I even uh, asked uh, my mother before our conversation, because she is from another generation, what is her point of view? And uh, she emphasized that we need to realize that uh, like um, 70% or 60% of the country um, they don't care about Alexei Navalny for sure, but they support the president. They support the idea of of supernation, um, that Russia is a country which uh, wants to be a supernational nation country, same as America. And uh, even Chinese people to whom I have spoken many years ago, they agree and they admire the Russian president because they like this style. He is tough, they said. He is a real man and he make, he keeps the order in his country. And it is not only the point of view of Chinese people, it is the point of view of many Russian people and of Russian people abroad as well. So we need to understand that this liberal opposition, as we could say, uh, it is not so uh, so widely presented. But it is, uh, uh, I think, uh, the person of uh, Putin uh, is uh, less and less popular. Some social reports saying that the uh, latest research of Navalny which he has announced after he, I don't know, ah, have you seen this film? Because Alexei Navalny is uh, well known for making uh, researches and um, films about corruption. So after he has re returned from Berlin, he has uh, published a movie about a huge palace of uh, Putin. And uh, it was supposed that it would be a huge scandal because it it was... Uh, talking about billions and billions of not rubles but dollars which were spent on this. Uh, but the reaction, it was like he's a tsar, a reaction of people. He could have a palace, but he is not a tsar, yes? He is an elected president. So here we face a problem. But uh, after this movie, uh, there was a big protest. They should understand that protest in Russia and in Europe, there's a very big difference between them. Because in Russia, when you just go to the street and you just want uh, in a pacific way to say, uh, what do you think? Mm -hmm. uh, you put a very big risk. You will be detained. Yes. So when thousands of people go to the street, uh, it is a big uh, deal. Yeah. If people take to the streets and protest and speak out against um, the government or something that's going on, they're very likely to be detained. And from my course in law, we looked a lot at the European Court of Human Rights cases on Russian detention and that they amount to torture. And I just wondered whether getting detained in Russia, whether it's really dangerous and, and whether it's a deterrent. So, unfortunately, we have a long story of this, starting from uh, 
from the beginning of the 20th century, uh, because uh, as uh, we were talking with you before, uh, Russia had these uh, uh, these tabers, which uh, were the gulag and many others, uh, and um, we needed to realize that. Um, the children of those people, they are still alive, and many of them still working in the same places where were working like their grand-grandfathers. Mm. I mean, yes, uh, police, I mean, uh, uh, KGB, and uh, all these places. And uh, maybe the thing uh, which I would like to, ma- to mention at the beginning uh, it's important to realize that if we compare Russia and Germany, which lessons they have taken from the Second World War and from the fascism and from the Stalinism, we see in Germany that at least when they talk about this, they realize that it was an awful mistake and a tragedy. But when we in Russia we, and in the center of Berlin, they have a museum of repressions and they talk about Holocaust and about all these things a lot. And it's open to the public. It's open to think about it. And it's normal. It's okay to do it uh, with kids, with adults, uh, with uh, students. What do we have in Russia? This question of memories. They are not reestimated. And this is, this is the hugest maybe danger which we as citizens see because everybody's talking about, uh, the 1937 year when these, uh, repressions were started when a lot of like million people were killed. And, uh, for the moment, like nobody said that it was a huge mistake and when it is not said in the society, we have the risk of uh, repetition of it. Then we understand that it can repeat. And uh, uh, this is, I think, the most important what we need to understand now. Uh, because uh, um, when people come to the streets, it's great that they do it. Uh, and... Uh, Yes, it is dangerous, and uh, I don't know if you have followed that um, the things which were happening in Belarus. Belarus is a neighbor state to Russia, from Moscow to Minsk, which is the capital of Belarus, 700 kilometers. So it's like to same same distance as to Saint Petersburg. In Belarus, last year in August, they had elections of the president of the country. And the current president, Lukashenko, didn't win it. But they have falsificated and they uh, have written that he, he's got 70%. And huge protests have started. But it was not the uh, same as here. It really like a whole country was in these protests and they are continuing and continuing. And there were three ladies who were head of their opposition. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, I heard BBC was talking to, to her. There was uh, Maria Kolesnikova, who is detained for the moment. And there was Veronika Tsepkala, Tsep, uh, uh, who is abroad. Hmm. And in August, uh, when this protest had started, the first reaction of the government was 
incredibly cruel. They just not beaten people on the streets, but they have detained like uh, up to the thousand people, and they really used tortures. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, in absolutely same as, as it was during fascism. And um, Russian people, they were observing this because in official news we didn't see anything, but for sure in uh, internet, in Telegram channels, in Twitter, uh, we have seen a lot of this. And Russian people, those who are thinking about protests, they realized that the scenario of Belarusia will be used here. Wow. So it's like the beginning of this story because we are really, uh, our people are really close to each other more than with Ukrainian people. Uh, I mean, it is like a brother nation, something like this, because a lot of people from Belarus come to work here and um, a lot of relatives are living there, a lot of uh, families together. So this is the first thing. And in Belarus, nothing had changed during this one year. So uh, it is a, a big international resonance and um, people are still struggling on the international arena and inside the country. But it's very, very difficult to change something. So this is what we need to understand. Uh, about Russian protests. Uh, yes, they already have... Uh, uh, Started uh, not uh, humanic, not human uh, behavior towards people. They were beating them on the streets. They have, uh, for the last time, they have, have grabbed, grabbed uh, around 2,000 people. But uh, yes, it is very dangerous. It's uh, it works like this then. Uh, if you are caught three times, you can go to the jail and uh, get the real, the real time which you will spend in the jail. So you will be not just detained, but you will uh, you will go to the prison. And uh, of course, they are trying to catch all people who are working for Alexei Navalny team, and uh, they have detained them even before protests. Mm. But apart from this, uh, they just uh, taking everybody without, without, uh, often without uh, having done something wrong. Yeah, yeah. So just for nothing. So if if people were being caught. If part of Alexei Navalny's team were being caught before they even took to the street or even protested because they, um, because Putin's trying to stop the opposition, does that mean that there are, is a kind of presence of secret police and undercover police, um, that is sort of a legacy from the, the sort of notorious KGB? Of course, uh, they continue to use the same instruments. Uh, so, even Boris Nemtsov, I think you know about him, uh, him yes. He spoke that these people who work uh, in the secret securities, uh, that they do a lot of mistakes. So this situation uh, with Navalny shows uh, that it is true. Yes, they just mm, couldn't murder uh, one person who didn't have any security service. 
this situation with the Salisbury or current situation with the Czech Republic, uh, all these situations uh, show that uh, they make stupid mistakes. I think it, it, it's because of uh, corruption. Uh, so in the Soviet Union, there was corruption, of course, but not so strong. And uh, now uh, this system uh, can't work well uh, because it is a system of corruption. Based on this, and obviously you lived in Europe before, like, you know, do you feel kind of scared to live in a society that has this level of, you know, secret police and corruption? And what's it like kind of raising children um, in Russia? And how does it compare to living in Europe? You know, uh, I think immigration is uh, uh, always a hard uh, thing. We uh, are quite sure that we uh, made a good decision. Now, uh, when I'm in Moscow, I feel uh, different uh, emotions. Uh, so I, uh, I'm glad to see uh, my friends, my family, but the city for, for me is uh, occupied uh, by these people. It is uh, not my city. Do you feel like it was beneficial to move then? Are the living standards and the education, is the education better for your children in Europe? Do you feel positive about moving away? You know, uh, yes, uh, our daughter is older, a daughter uh, is starting a family school. So uh, I think in Moscow uh, we could uh, find a quite similar school for her. But, uh, you know, each year uh, the situation with education become worse and worse in Russia because the government uh, try to control all uh, educational system. Uh, traditionally, we have very good education uh, and uh, comparative education. Our physics and uh, mathematics have a, a very good uh, reputation around the world. But uh, yes, each year become worse and worse. Now, for example, our government creates new law that uh, every teacher should agree that he uh, follows to government ideas. Yes, and a lot of uh, people from our best universities have lost their job now. So there's there's a kind of format that everyone has to follow, and it, there's a level of propaganda that's actually infused into the educational system and, and what people are allowed to access in terms of information. and Yes, I think now uh, at school, children uh, learn fake history of uh, Russia. You know, I, I, I don't know uh, if this propaganda uh, really influences students. I think it's more about control. I mean that people understand it isn't true. Mm -hmm. what they hear, but they just uh, should follow this uh, ideology, so uh, because of control. We just wanted to ask, because obviously it's kind of what's going on at the moment with the situation in Ukraine, with Russia sending troops to the border between Ukraine, and like, what would you say like the atmosphere is in like, Russia, like what's the media um, discussions on this? Our media, they like the aesthetic of war. Yes, and I can say that if you want to understand what Putin do in geopolitics and why he does it, it looks like a boy plays with 
small uh, soldiers. So uh, I think for him, uh, it's just a play. Yeah, because when we spoke to Kate about the Ukraine coal crisis and the war going on in the Donbass region between Russia and separatist movements and the rest of Ukraine, perhaps one might think that Russia might gain energy and coal and um, actually gain land and, and gain control over the huge coal industry there. But it didn't seem like that was what it was at all. It just seemed like Russia was just spurring on people to move themselves from Ukraine. And she was saying that there was a lot of propaganda in, in the Donbass region sort of against Ukraine. And so it, it did, it, it seems really fruitless and yeah, I guess that's why, it, as you say, it's um, a game for Putin. To conclude, in every episode we've done so far, we have asked the person we're interviewing if there's like anything proactive that listeners can do to maybe, like obviously the international picture of Russia is really important and like the more the media in the UK is talking about what's going on, it obviously like puts pressure on you know, public denouncement of the human rights abuses and everything else that's happening in Russia. So what do you think we can advise and we can do ourselves as citizens in the UK or in Europe to be allies with people in Russia? I think it is very good that you speak about it. Uh, you know, uh, it is. Uh, it was a little bit strange that during these last protests, there were not so much uh, policemen. And uh, I think uh, it's because of uh, world interest to these uh, protests. So it's uh, really good that you are interested uh, in this question. You can't hide from international media. Like You can only go so far to control your own population. But if the other six billion people don't believe your story, then there's only so far so much you can do about that and I think as you say that's going to be good for a war of attrition against Putin well thank you so much for coming to speak with us both and with the Earth Rights podcast thank you very much for your interest and for your questions good luck with your uh, podcast If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.